his arrest. We're nearing his crucifixion, and we're going to get to see the blood of Jesus on display here in just a couple of weeks in the text as we study. Well, this morning, we're going to, we're a little bit ahead of that. We're before Jesus gets crucified, and we're going to get to see a passage in which the Jews who called for Jesus's execution show their own hypocrisy. You can begin turning with me to John chapter 18. We're in verse 28 this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me, and it's reprinted in your bulletin as well. But hypocrisy, that's one of those words which we have some of the greatest disdain for in life. There's little we dislike more than a hypocrite in this world. We learn to spot them from a very young age, don't we? Mommy says we shouldn't use swear words, but when she gets mad, she says them. Daddy tells me to be nice to my siblings, but he says bad things about his brother when his brother's not around. Our kids know from a very young age how to spot a hypocrite. And hypocrisy, the hypocrite, will show themselves trying to make themselves look righteous or impressive while all the while hiding their evil, trying to let it lie underneath the surface. Hypocrisy is so infuriating because it rubs up against our sense of justice because we know it's not right. And yet, though people ought to practice what they preach, too often people live by the motto, do as I say, not as I do. Well, today we're going to encounter such a passage. Now, this passage in John, it's largely transitional. It's moving from one action scene in John to another action scene in John, from the trial with the Jews to the trial with Pilate. And yet, even in this short transitional narrative, we're going to see the hypocrisy of the Jews on display, how their hypocritical heart betrays them in this passage. Their hypocrisy will be for us to see. While claiming that Jesus is doing evil, they are actually the ones committing the greatest evil the world has ever known. And if you will listen with me very carefully today, I think that we will find that the Jews are not the only ones with hypocrisy in their hearts. Will you pray with me before we go to God's word? Our Father in heaven, you are holy and we praise you that you have condescended to speak to us in your word. I praise you for your holy word which is now before us all. I praise you for the means by which we have the ability to access it through the written word in this Bible in front of us or on the screens behind us or on our phones. What a privilege it is, Lord, to live in an age where your word is so readily available to us. Make us attentive to its words. As we encounter a passage we have encountered many times before, teach us to see it again with new eyes, to pause and linger long enough to ask, why would you speak these words? And by the Spirit who is alive, who is active, and who pierces our hearts far deeper than any human voice can, would you have your way with us this morning? Convict us of sin. Encourage us where we are discouraged. 
Build up your church now by your word. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me now John 18. We're going to read the whole passage, 28 through 32. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's house. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what means of death, what kind of death he was going to die. Like I said, a a largely transitional scene here from one place of action to another. There's a lot of tension going on here in this passage. Tension during that time that you and I stepping in may not immediately be aware of. So let me set the scene for you in the city of Jerusalem so that you have an idea of what sort of tension is Jesus stepping into in this moment. Thousands of Jews have poured into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover meal. It's one of the big festivals. It's one of the high holy days for the Jews then as it is even today. And so thousands upon thousands of Jews have come into Jerusalem. Now, Judea, the region that this is in, is a region of Rome that's known for unrest. There's been a number of uprisings or unrest or civil disobediences that have happened within this region. And so the Jews in their land here, some of them wanting their own space and waiting for it, others of them quite ready to take up arms to try to make this land their own yet again. Even just a hundred years prior, there had been the Maccabean Revolution that attempted to separate the Jews from Rome unsuccessfully. And so the Roman officials were on high alert because this rebellious region has thousands of Jews pouring in for an important Jewish holiday, and Rome has one thought in mind. Keep the peace. Don't let there be a riot. Don't let there be a rebellion. And this is why we see Pilate in the city of Jerusalem at all. Normally, Pilate would have lived on the coast, a much nicer place to live than Jerusalem, a very nice sea breeze coming off the Mediterranean. And so Caesarea was his normal house. But we find Pilate in Jerusalem at the Passover because Pilate is the official Roman leader of this region, and it is his job to keep the peace. And so Pilate has on his mind stopping any rebellions, stopping any riots. And we see that for whatever reasons, unknown to us, there's been a conversation among the Jewish leaders and Pilate already to this point, and Pilate has given them a Roman guard. I suppose he had convinced them that Jesus was enough of a threat to the peacefulness of this time of the Passover that the Jews took with them Roman guards in order to arrest Jesus. And this is because Pilate knows he needs to keep peace. And when you have an angry Jewish leadership coming to you and saying, we have a 
man who stirs up the people, Pilate's thinking this needs to be put down before Passover comes. It is into this tension of a rebellious Jewish people against Rome who want to overthrow Rome and Pilate trying to suppress that rebellion that Jesus steps on the scene, caught in the middle of this tension. To this point, Jesus has been arrested in the garden with those Roman soldiers. He's been tried at Annas's house. That's the former high priest. That's what Dave preached on last week. And then John skips over a couple of other Jewish trials that happens for Jesus. We see in verse 28, it says, Then they led him from the house of Caiaphas. You see, we didn't get to hear anything that happened at Caiaphas' house, at least not in the Gospel of John. But we know from other Gospels that Jesus has faced a trial at Caiaphas' house before Caiaphas, the high priest, that he's been tried by the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leadership of the time. And now he is being paraded from Caiaphas' house over to Pilate's bright and early in the morning. You see, our text says it was early morning. Jesus has gone without sleep this night. He's been falsely accused time and time again. And so now the Jews have found him guilty of breaking Jewish law, and they believe he deserves death. Well, they can't perform this kind of execution, we'll find later in this passage, and so they have to take him over to Pilate, the Roman official. And now Jesus, having just stood trial three times over with the Jews, will now stand trial under Roman law with Pilate. And they will seek for Jesus the death sentence. It was only Rome that had this ability in this kind of a case. And so by this point, the Jews are really probably hoping, well, Pilate already gave us the soldiers. We really want him to just kind of rubber stamp the trials that we've already had. We know what needs to happen to Jesus, the Jews are thinking. He needs to be put to death. We just need Pilate to stamp it, and we'll be right on our way. And yet Pilate does not do that. He doesn't just rubber stamp what the Jews have already decided, but rather he decides to hold his own trial. We see here in verse 28, sorry, verse 29, Pilate comes out, and he went out to them. Now, this would have been actually bringing his judgment seat the way he is standing as a judge. He's bringing that out, and he is going to set up his court outside. Now, we'll return in a minute to why he had to go outside. But first, let's look at the trial, the first trial of Jesus here before Pilate. He says, he comes out, he sits, and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? In other words, lay the charges out, Jews. I want to hear them for myself. It's very likely he may have received some sort of brief ahead of time as a Roman official, and they know, he knows something of the case that's coming, and yet he wants to hear from them. Make your case. We do this in our courts of law. You stand before the judge and the lawyers, right, they make their case. Well, that's what Pilate is asking for from the Jews. Make your case Jews. And we can see from their response, they're really not at all prepared to make a case against Jesus under Roman law. They answer back to Pilate, if this man were not doing evil, would we not have delivered him over to you? That has got to be the worst legal argument ever. Well, he was doing wrong, and clearly he showed up, so clearly he's wrong. Pilate's not falling for this one. 
He knows the tricks of the Jews. He understands what they want from him. And so Pilate, in response, sends them back and says, this is your business. This is your matter. You see, the Jews really have nothing against Jesus. What would Jesus have to be guilty of before the Romans? Healing the blind? Freeing the demon-possessed? Feeding 5,000 or raising the dead? See, the only accusations the Jews actually have against Jesus are things which they themselves do not understand. They're upset because he heals on the Sabbath. Yet his heavenly Father is working even on the Sabbath. He declares himself to be God's Son, the Messiah, which, if it's false, is blasphemy. But if, it, if it's true, they should fall down and worship him. He says that he will raise up the temple in three days when it's destroyed, and yet they misunderstand he's not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. He speaks of his own body. You see, all the accusations that the Jews level against Jesus are all baseless. Essentially, they have no case, except they don't like his teaching. They don't want him around anymore, so they want him gone. That's really what they want. The Jews, though, hearing Pilate's answer, go deal with this yourselves. They said, we already deal with this ourselves. And we believe he needs to die. So they respond back to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, that's not entirely true. We actually see in other circumstances, the Jews do put some people to death, and the Romans had given them some official capacity to do so. Certain instances with the temple, they could put someone to death. But in Jesus' case, with this particular kind of trial, they don't have capital punishment under their jurisdiction. That's at the hands of the Romans. And so that's why they're pressing Pilate. Pilate, we want you to give him the death sentence. And then the verse 32 comes in, and the, John the narrator helps us to understand why all this is going on. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. It is to fulfill what Jesus had foretold that was going to happen, and that is the kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus had already said he's going to die on the cross. He knew he was going to be raised up, is the language Jesus used. He's going to be raised up so that all may see him, like that bronze serpent in the wilderness that the Israelites looked at in order to be healed. Jesus would be raised up like that on a cross. And yet, there were going to need to be a constellation of events that come together to make that happen. Because only clear threats, clear subversions to Roman rule, only those kind of criminals were put to death on a cross. The Jews had no authority to crucify anyone. And so it would be necessary for the Jews to put forward a case to have Jesus executed Roman style on a cross. Crucifixion was for the Romans a clear symbol that if you try to subvert Rome, this is what happens to you. You're nailed to a cross. And yet Jesus' encounters with the Jews have from time to time been pretty difficult. We'll even hear some of that today. And yet his interactions with the Romans have been largely to bless them. The Roman centurion, 
who needs his servant healed. You see, when Jesus encounters the Roman officials throughout his ministry, it's been a time of blessing for the Romans. What cause for crucifixion does Pilate have? The answer is nothing. Pilate essentially tries to acquit Jesus this first time around. What accusation do you have? Well, we just don't like him. Go deal with it yourselves then. That doesn't involve me. It doesn't involve Rome. This clearly has something to do with your religion. That's the way Rome would view this. And yet it is by the sovereign hand of God that these events are taking place. The Jews will demand the execution of Jesus. And we will see God's sovereign work through this event because in order for Jesus to be crucified, the Romans would do it and he will, Pilate will only do it as the Jews push him for it. You see, it will be the stubbornness of the Jewish leaders that presses Pilate to crucify Jesus. We will see this in a few weeks. And yet this too is under the sovereign hand of God. That even the evil committed against Jesus, the wickedness of the Jewish false accusations, they're pressing even toward riot and mob. Even that evil is under the hand of God. And Jesus himself foretells this ahead of time. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He calls them right out early in the ministry. Hypocrites, why? For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate monuments for the righteous, saying, If we had been alive in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And then Jesus says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he goes on and he tells them, Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Jesus knows ahead of time it will be at the hands of these Jewish leaders who claim that they would never have murdered the prophets. And Jesus says, Oh, you think so, do you? You think so, you hypocrite. You will not only murder a prophet, but you will murder the very Son of God come down to save you, come down to be your Messiah. It will be at your own hands. Therefore, fill up that full measure that your forefathers have yet to accomplish to crucify your God. But let's not forget, this is God's plan. This is God's will. Using the wickedness of the Jews to accomplish the good of God's will. There's a great truth in this, and that is that God will not be mocked. His will will not be subverted. The evil committed against Jesus does not thwart God's plan, but rather establishes it. This is true for even the Christian today. Do not be dismayed when evil befalls you for doing good. We are told this repeatedly by Jesus, by Peter in his letter. Don't be dismayed when evil befalls you. For by suffering harm for doing good, you actually show yourself to be the blessed people of God, the people who follow in Jesus' footsteps. God's will for your life, it is not thwarted by sinful men or their actions towards you, whether they be small 
like an untrue accusation from a friend or someone who takes credit for your work, or they may be very large. And grave sins, the unfaithfulness of a spouse committed against you or of physical or emotional or sexual abuse, these are not evils which overpower God's will in your life. God's power and his plan for you can be seen through the evil of others. It may, in fact, be through the sinful acts committed against you that you get to behold the glory of God in a way you otherwise would not have. Or that God ordains such suffering to be the means by which he establishes future good for you. This is difficult and frequently not easy to see. And yet in the moment when Jesus is before Pilate, the charade of a trial that the Jews are putting on seems like nothing but untamed evil for Jesus. But it is the very will of God for him that he might go through such evil committed against him. We can see that it is actually the sin of man, the sin of the Jews, which therefore establishes God's will. Do not be deceived, Christians. Do not be dismayed or discouraged when others commit evil against you as if God is powerless in the situation. He is anything but And it may be the very means by which God sees good done for you or sees holiness made in you. God will not be mocked. Man's evil does not overcome his will, and we can praise the Lord for that. So who's doing evil in this passage? The Jews say, we wouldn't have brought him out to you if he wasn't doing evil. Yet we see they are the clear hypocrites in this situation for they are the ones doing evil. It is not Jesus, but rather it is the Jews hiding behind their religious mask. Go back to the first passage, the very first verse here, verse 28. Let's reread that because it just feels like a transition sentence, like getting us to the next place in the passage. But there is so much that shows the heart of the Jews here. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early day. Now let's hear the, what's going on with the Jews in this next sentence. They, the Jews, there taking him, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. There are two things I want you to see here. Two things that show us the heart of the Jews. The first one is they didn't enter his house because they didn't want to be defiled. And the second is They wanted to eat the Passover. They didn't want to be defiled because they wanted to eat the Passover. Let's look at that, not being defiled. Again, like I told you, thousands of Jews, they poured into the city for the Passover meal. And in preparation for the Passover meal, as one of these high holy holidays for the Jews, they needed to be ritually purified in order to participate in this holiday. Now, you and I, we might think of ritual purity in a negative sense because it seems like a lot of just religious rule-keeping. Like, why do you do these certain rules and practices and policies? Like, it just seems like legalism to us. And yet, for the Jews, it was anything but that. In fact, God himself had commanded the Jews to be ritually pure for certain events or activities. They had to be in order to participate. And so, 
to try to remain pure for the Passover was an attempt to honor God. And for that, we would want to say, well done, Jews. Don't defile yourselves before the Passover. And yet what we see in this passage is the hypocrisy of their desire to not defile themselves while committing great evil and thus defiling themselves. In this passage, they stand outside. They're very concerned to be ritually pure on the outside, but they have little concern for what's going on on the inside, the impurities which they stir up even in their own hearts. This is something that the Jewish religious leaders had become very good at in Jesus' time, and Jesus had pointed it out clearly multiple times over in his ministry. They were so concerned with the external that they were not concerned with the internal purity. Here Jesus' words from Matthew 23, some more of those woes to the scribes and Pharisees. We hear, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law. What are those, Jesus? What are the weightier matters than tithing mint and dill and cumin? How about justice, mercy, and faithfulness? He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So concerned with the outside and what you look like that you are not concerned with the inside. And he makes that explicit. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and indulgence. Or woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You see, the Jewish leaders had learned really, really well how to look good for other people. Praying on the street corner so that people could hear their wonderful prayers. Thankful that they were born into God's people and not like the Gentiles that are around them. They want to look good on the outside, and yet inside they're full of sin. See, here's what it would be like. It'd be like you robbed a bank and you murdered the teller in the process, but you were really careful not to break the speed limit in your getaway car right? The judge, you come before the judge, what's he going to do with your careful driving? Oh, I'm so glad that you did not break the speed limit in your, high, in your car chase afterward with the police. No, that's going to be of no consequence for you robbed and you murdered. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're so concerned with the little things of the law on the outside. You forgot the Lord looks upon the heart of a man not merely on his outward actions. You know, Jesus doesn't tell them to throw away God's command of tithing and throw away God's command of external obedience, but he says, look, it needs to issue from the heart, for from the heart the mouth speaks. They stood outside Pilate's house, self-righteously patting themselves on the back. Man, well done. Not defiling myself. I'm going to eat that Passover meal. Well done. I'm so glad that I'm being faithful to God. Let's go murder this guy. They're totally blind to this. While claiming to be pure, they commit impurity, murdering Emmanuel, their God, with them. See, the Jewish leaders are so concerned with godliness that they actually cease to be godly. And 
Like I said, if you and I listen carefully today, I wonder if they're the only hypocrite in this area. You know, as Christians, we ought to be careful. Seeking to be holy or pure or loving, Christians can sometimes actually lose those virtues if we try to merely seek them on the outside or for the approval of others. Some Christians, in pursuing love, have actually abandoned the Word of God. Others, while feigning religious piety by attending Bible studies and going to the worship service and I raise my hand in the songs when I feel like the Spirit moves me, feigning the religious piety, and yet all the while in their private lives back at home, full of sinful self-indulgence. Some Christians will be polite outwardly to others, but inwardly harbor great bitterness and anger toward another. Christians, we must be careful that the outside of the cup is pure because the inside has been washed clean. And so let me just ask you, do you Do you act like you've got it together? Do you act pure on the outside? This is what the Jewish leaders did, acting right out here, and yet knowing that there is sin, maybe deep hurts and wounds, pretending like everything's okay. You know what polite suburban life tells you to do? It tells you to act like everything's fine. Act like everything's fine until the entire thing blows up or you can move on and move somewhere else where nobody knows your problems anymore. Polite suburban life would tell you to keep up the charade. Like the Jews, we're tempted to put on a good show while inwardly being filled with sinful indulgence sometimes, while inwardly maybe hurting very deeply, even stepping into the service today, maybe hurting deeply today, or caught in sin today. Do you put on a front like the Jews were putting on a front so that other people will see that everything's just fine with you. You're the most godly man or woman to walk this planet in a while. You see, Jesus repeatedly spoke out against hiding these things, against the inward sins that we hide, against the way that we seek to look righteous on the outside. And it's painful and difficult to expose those things. But the beauty of the gospel is God does not require you to pretend like it's all put together. A couple of years ago, I was uh, told of a beautiful form of artwork that the Japanese make. Uh, Here on the screen, you'll see there's a couple of pots up here and a vase. Uh, This is called, and I'm going to try and say this right, kintsugi. This is kintsugi, and what kintsugi is, it is a Japanese form of mending broken pottery. The Japanese, when a pot breaks, in some instance, they'll take gold or silver or platinum and they'll place it in the joints of the broken vessel. And they'll mend the pottery back together, not to hide the flaws, as if you took super glue and you tried to get those pieces just right all together so that you don't see anything. No, in fact, the Japanese seek to accentuate the brokenness, accentuate the breaks in the pottery. As a philosophy, Kintsugi views the shattering and the restoring as a natural process of this pottery's history. So they don't hide the faults. They don't hide the breaks. They put them on display. And in fact, the pottery, once it's been restored, is often considered even more beautiful 
than when it originally started. I don't want a bunch of glued together super glue pots in the church. I want to see the glory of God on display in our faults and our cracks, to see the glory of God where it fills those in, that his power will be perfect in our weakness, that we may boast all the more gladly to say, the Lord has delivered me from sin. Look what he has brought me through, rather than to say, I'm fine. You don't need to hide the cracks. We can see God's glory in them. You don't need to act like it's put together. For in showing us the work of God in your hurts, we will glorify God more together. You have a choice. You want to pretend like there aren't cracks and hope nobody notices. Good luck. Not only is that hard and a heavy weight to bear, but I promise you it won't last. Eventually, eventually, the overflow of the heart speaks. The situations in our lives come to light. Or you can admit that you're broken, that you're caught in sin, and bring it to the Lord and let the Lord fill that with gold to his glory. That his glory might be displayed in your weakness. We're not the only ones who were tempted. The Jews are not the only ones who were tempted to act like hypocrites, acting good on the outside but evil on the inside. We need to be careful as well, Christian. We see this in this passage where they will not enter Pilate's house because they don't want to be defiled. But I told you there's a second thing, and this is our brief one, because they, don't want to eat, they do want to eat the Passover. They don't want to defile themselves so that they can eat the Passover. I told you they need to be ritually pure in order to eat this Passover. They want to participate in God's Passover meal. And there's a great irony here. The great irony is that they want to participate in Passover, and yet they don't realize the true Passover lamb standing right in front of them. They are the ones who are going to kill him. They will slaughter the Passover lamb. And it's not the baby sheep in their house that they will then cook for dinner. No, it will be the true Passover lamb who they will kill. It will be Jesus on Calvary. And this was all because it's God's design. Jesus, speaking ahead of time of these things, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and he will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The Jews wanted to eat the Passover meal, but they were looking for the wrong lamb. While they made their plans to have lamb dinner, Jesus was providing for them the true Passover meal that their souls really needed. His flesh was crucified. His blood was spilled out so that everyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. For his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. And even today, that stands true. The flesh of Jesus Christ and his blood are the truest form, 
the realities of the Passover meal, that anyone who will drink from him will never thirst again, that the deep recesses of your soul can be met by Jesus Christ, who is the one true Passover lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. If your soul is hungry, you can come to Jesus. If your soul is thirsty and you're parched, you can come to Jesus. If you believe in him, you will never hunger again. Your soul will never go hungry. Your soul will never go thirsty again. For he is the true Passover lamb. Jesus might have been taken to Pilate to be tried, but Jesus is the true King of Kings. And he went willingly to his death for you. Have you believed him? Let us pray. Father, we glorify your name for the marvelous work you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. The Jews and Pilate had their plan, but Lord, you established yours. By your sovereign decree, you accomplished all that you purposed through your son, Jesus. Now we, your people, now and forevermore, thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. We confess that he is your sinless son. He is our spotless lamb. Father, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would search out the hearts of each of us here, that each man and woman would be convicted of sin and turn to Jesus Christ for the first or the 500th time. Teach your people again not to hide behind outward religiosity, but to love you from our hearts. Father, cleanse us from the inside that the outside may be clean also. Lord, we praise and we thank you in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.